everybody. Good to see you. New trailer, new bumper for a new series. You can thank Jordan Tempe right up here in the front. Him and Cassie are, the, uh, are part of our media crew, and uh, they're just creative videographer, photographer kind of people. Um, if you are like that, then hit him up and help him as we think of how to be more creative in our services. I've got a couple things to talk about before we get to the, the sermon today. <clears throat> Firstly, um, I feel like I'm amongst the, the living now. Um, and I'm looking out, hearing the coughs and the, seeing the cough drop breaking out. And I got tea in my coffee cup here. You know, that's, that's just wrong right there, right? Um, and so there is a national flu epidemic. If you hadn't been watching the news, um, it's out. And so my wife, my wife missed church last week. Um, you guys had me, uh, remember at the end of the service, I prayed for, uh, for her and, and asked you guys to, to think of us. The next day, she went to the hospital and I got sick. And so we stayed in bed for all, I mean, until Thursday, out for the count. And Jonathan got sick. And uh, it's just by the grace of God that we're here today. Um, so I learned two things from that. All right. Flu shot. Go get it. I hadn't gotten mine yet. Go get that flu shot. Make that thing work. And then uh, wash your hands. Um, anytime you are around a lot of, and then, you know, I'm, as I'm learning, all of us have been sick this week. All of us, really. Tyler and Heather and Will and Wendy and um, the, the Jagway family, all of us in here have been sick, and probably our kids to the Collinsworth, all, all of us. So wash your hands before you eat or do anything with your hands around your face, and then uh, go get your, your flu shot. The other thing is, I was very appreciative, even without us asking, really without us even knowing anyone knowing that we were sick, because we weren't trying to tell people. I hate how pastors do that. They just don't tell people about their lives. Um, that's, that's not how we are, seriously. Uh, but just how uh, a few of you in the, in the church served us, um, just without even asking. Uh, Gatorade, medicine, soup, um, food. It was, just, it was just neat to see that happen. And I'm not saying that because you, I'm encouraging you to love your pastor like that, but I'm, I want you to love each other like that. And this is a shameless plug for community group. One of the reasons why people knew that there are a few people that knew we were sick was because they were in our community group. And as we've formed our community group, we've learned that community is not just a Bible study that we do one day of the week, but it really is a mingling of our lives together throughout the different activities and the things that go on so that we know what's going on in each other's lives and we can come to each other's aid when really there's a need to. And uh, uh, coincidentally, one of the people that brought us medicine and orange juice and stuff, they're sick now, too. They got the flu, too. And I was trying. I was like, don't come in the door. Stop right there. So that's what really happens. So, but uh, I don't know. This, this flu thing is serious. It really is serious this year. Um, and so those of you that are medical personnel, when we break after the sermon, do what you do and make sure people are doing the right thing. All right. So if you have your Bibles, turn to uh, the book of Colossians. We're going to be in the first chapter. We're going to read two verses today. Two whole verses. Two whole verses. Can you believe that? Jeff's going to read just two verses, and it's probably going to take us, I don't know, 40, 45, 45 minutes. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. Uh, down the center aisle, there's some Bible stacked underneath the chair. Hold down to the person at the end of the road. Get one. You can have that and keep it as your own. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. When you get that, we're going to go ahead and read these out loud together. The words will be on your screen. As well. Here we go. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, 
to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. That's God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful to be gathered together as your church. Anytime that people can come together and we're singing songs to Jesus, worshiping and talking about the good news of your death and your resurrection on the cross, your ascension into heaven, interceding for us, it's a good day. And so we consider it a good day. The sun is shining. It's 50 degrees here in Kingstown. Uh, what a great day we, that you've given us. Lord, as we open your word today, God, would you give us eyes to see freshly in this greeting, just Paul greeting the church at Colossae. Would you help us to see something that we've yet to see in your word? Would you give us an appreciation for this, this man of God that you commissioned as an apostle to speak into their lives and as an extension into our lives as well? Would you give us what you meant for them? Would you give us that reciprocally and help us to... Um, to understand what Paul was saying to them and what he would have for us 2,000 years later. Lord, we thank you that your word will go forth today uh, in power. God, we pray the Holy Spirit would change us in, uh, under its hearing. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen. All right, so today we begin our study in the book of Colossians. What I want to do is uh, we're going to be here for a couple, really three months, probably 17 to 20 weeks. We're going to take a couple breaks. We'll take a break um, uh, primarily in April. April, we've got Easter. We've got uh, our one-year celebration where we will look three weeks and just pause and say, and you remember, let's reflect on who we are as a church and look forward as to what our mission and our vision and values that God has given us as a church are. And then we're just basically going to plow, plow right on through. Uh, when we get into the summer months, we're going to look at the Psalms. And so for two months, uh, June, July time frame, we're going to um, break open the Psalms and look and see what the psalmists have to say for us in terms of life. And then as we get into the fall, um, I think we're going to remind ourselves of what our mission is, preaching the gospel, making disciples. That's what God has called us to do here in this church. That's what he's called every church to do. And then uh, we'll round out the fall talking about money, stewardship, money, 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 money. I, if, if the creative team allows me to, that's what we're going to call it. Money, 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 money. What would God have you do with the money that you earn and that he blesses you to, to have? And then we'll finish the year up with Advent. So that's our year. Fast year. And uh, unless God changes my mind on a couple of things, that's really the direction that we're going. Um, as we dive into the book of Colossians, this is a, an epistle. An epistle is a fancy Bible word that really means letter. So Paul is writing a letter to a group of, of people. There are um, 21 of the 27 books in the New Testament are epistles. Paul wrote 13 of those. And so this is a significant book for us that the Apostle Paul has written for us to glean, to glean from. Um, epistles help us in a couple of different ways. Firstly, they give us a perspective of the Christian life on the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection. We're able to look back at the cross through what has been written, and we see in light of who Jesus is and what he did, his gospel, this is how we should live. This is what an epistle does for us. And I think the other thing that an epistle does for us is it helps us to, it helps us to see Specific instances in the church. I lost my place. Um, this is written to a specific people, a specific church, and they have specific issues. 
And the neat thing is that we can open all these 21 epistles and see church discipline issues and government issues and uh, relationship issues and all of these things and how the apostles themselves address them. And we can glean from that ourselves. Uh, This is a letter. And so think about you going to your mailbox. It it didn't happen like that in those days. You go into your mailbox, open, open your mailbox and seeing how. We've gotten letter. We've gotten letters from a long way away. Um, what do you think about when you receive mail in your mailbox? Probably the, the two important things for all of us are who wrote it and who's it to. OK, so in verse one, we see who wrote this this letter. Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. So we learn right out right out front. Paul wrote this letter and he gives sending credit to Timothy. Now, he's not going to talk a lot about Timothy throughout the rest of this this letter, but Timothy is not a co-writer. Timothy actually is his secretary throughout this process. So Timothy's Paul's probably sitting in a chair. Timothy's right beside him. He's writing, scrolling all this stuff out, and Paul is just is dictating. But Timothy really was a companion of Paul. Um, we learn about Timothy during Paul's second missionary journey. He um, finds him in the, the town of Lystra. And Timothy is, is uh, half Greek, half Jew. Uh, and Paul recognized right off front that he had uh, the gift of God in him. So Paul uh, basically mentors this young man, converts him, circumc- circumcises him, and then decides to take him on all his missionary journeys and ev- eventually um, ordains him as an, uh, uh, an elder in the church. So Timothy's a big deal. And to have Timothy um, really be a co-sender of this says that um, likely his thoughts are in here as well, along with with Paul. Paul calls himself an apostle by the will of God. And this is why he's able to write to the Colossians, a group of people, uh, a group of people that he had had never seen, um, a church that he did not plant. Paul did not plant this church at all. The word for apostle is the Greek word uh, apostolos. It means messenger. So the word in context means one who was sent with immediate divine authority. An apostle was one who spoke authoritatively on behalf of God. Think about Jesus when he was starting his ministry and those specific disciples that he walked up to looked with his eyes into their eyes and said, follow me, follow me, follow me. They dropped everything that they were doing and they basically Follow him. And for basically the three years of Jesus life, they lived amongst him. They heard him speak. He was teaching other people. But really, his 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 orientation was on these these men who would eventually take over his mission of making disciples and starting the church. And he eventually commissioned these young men, gave them power to, to heal in his name, perform all kind of miracles. And when Jesus ascended, he told them, do what I've been doing. Make disciples, baptize them. But not only that, I want you to create the church and lead it into all that it will become in my name through the message of of my gospel. So Paul here, as as he does in several other places in the Bible, claims to belong to this elite group. And it's interesting because we know that Paul wasn't amongst them. When we turn to Luke 6, 6, 13 and see that Jesus name, he went away to pray, came back and said, all right, so these are my disciples that I'm going to call apostles. Paul's name wasn't amongst these, these first um, 12 apostles. 
But uh, we know that Paul was uh, actually one of them. Paul says, by the will of God, that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Paul was an unlikely apostle. I think that's what he's saying. He's saying this was totally not my doing. I didn't when I was a young boy and I was five years old. I, you know, I didn't want to be an apostle. You know how when we're five, we either want to be what our dad is doing or we want to be a a fireman or a police officer because we think there's that they got cool trucks. They make cool sounds. And that's just the thing to do. Right. Okay. Um, Paul didn't grow up wanting to be an apostle. We meet Paul in Acts chapter eight, and he's he's a man. He's a theologian. He's a genius, really. And he's standing over the newly commissioned deacon, Stephen, as he's been stoned to death. And the scripture says Paul approves of this action that's going on, of, of Stephen being martyred. And then in Acts chapter nine, we see that Paul meets Jesus. Paul has gotten letters from the, the Jewish elite rulers, and he's intending to go to Damascus and find whatever Christians he can find in the synagogue, um, secure them, bring them back to Jerusalem, persecute them, probably hang them or um, kill them in some way for the cause, for the cause of the, the, the Jewish nation. But what happens before he could get to Damascus? He meets Jesus and Jesus reorients him completely changes Paul, not his persona, not not his zeal for for life and for for God. But he changes, um, changes his orientation away from persecuting Christians to being the one persecuted for the cause of Christ. That's Paul. He says, you know what? I have a very unlikely background that would that, that God would make me the least of the apostles, one that would stand for his name and speak for him. What I want you to get out of out of these few words in, in verse one is that Paul is saying something very specific to the church at Colossae that he had never seen before and that he didn't plant. And he's saying that same thing to us today by introducing himself as an apostle by the will of God. He's saying we're obligated to listen to him and take heed. Have you ever thought about that? He's saying I'm writing some stuff down. It's authoritative. And actually, these are inspired words that I'm giving you right now. Be prepared to do what I say. I believe that's what Paul is, why he's introducing himself in this way and and why he does it in many of his letters so authoritatively. This would be like getting a ticket, you know, think about ways that you um, that you obey something in our society without knowing who sent it. Say you, you were in a rush, you're in D.C. Now, you, you can't go anywhere in D.C. without paying for parking, right? And so you park somewhere like uh, Mount Vernon, uh, uh, Vermont Street, where we had the wedding last week. And you don't, pay, you don't pay the parking meter thing. And you come back and you got a ticket. All right, so you got a choice. I'm either going to pay my ticket or not pay my ticket. Say it's, it's, uh, you get a letter in the mail that says, come to jury duty. You, could, you got two choices. You go to jury duty or you don't go to jury duty. I mean, do you know who sent that to you? I mean, do you really know? But you're told to go to jury duty. What are you going to do? I'm going to go to jury duty. I got a ticket several months ago for speeding on. Uh, I didn't. I wasn't speeding. Don't say that, Jeff. I wasn't speeding. I was in the HOV. I, I was on 66. Um, 66 is a, a HOV restriction. I didn't know it. I was kind of new here. At least I played it. I was new. And. Uh, <laughs> 
I, w- I, did, I was just following my iPhone, folks. I was following my iPhone. The iPhone doesn't lie. The iPhone told me to turn on I-66 East. And uh, police had a, they were staked out there. And they said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm going to this location here. And said, well, this is a HOV restriction. I said, well, I'm just following my iPhone. I got this ticket, $187. So I knew who it came from. I mean, did Jeff pay for it? Absolutely. Why? Because I didn't want the ramification of not doing what it said. This is the same way, except this carries more weight than that. Paul's self-introduction as an apostle claims to contain revelation from God. God is speaking to you through me. I believe the apostles absolutely knew that when they were talking and writing. And this is an important point for us in, in how we read the Bible and how you open your Bible up and receive the words as your eyes are trained on the paper. And it's going across this, you know, getting information that that's coming from this this paper. You know, many of us ignore parts of scripture. I, I, I'm like you. Every once in a while, I mean, why do I need to why do I need to read these trite words uh, and an apostle of Christ Jesus? But I know who Paul is. He's told me in other places who he is. What good could that have for me? What I would tell you, let's 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 change our thought on that. This is a man, a special man. There's none. Uh, there, there are only 12. There were 13 of them. One fell They're They're, they're special men commissioned by God to speak on his behalf. They're. There will never be any like quite like these apostles. And so when when we read their writing, we we should take it as Second Timothy 316 says it's it's training, it's reproof, it's correction and righteousness for us. And so these are important words, even Paul greeting us. You know, we ignore verses. Sometimes we ignore chapters and whole verses because we say, ah, you know, this this part isn't for me. I, there's nothing in this part of Scripture for me. But I would tell you all of the Bible is important, even the even the greeting, even the introduction. We should take it seriously, treating it with high regard as what God reveals to us about himself. And so ask yourself this question as you as we're entering this book of Colossians. How do you treat Scripture? How do you treat the Bible? Does it bear the appropriate weightiness in your life when you read it that it deserves? Verse two. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. I'll stop right there. Verse one told us who wrote it. Paul wrote it and he gives sending credit to Timothy. Verse two tells us who he's sending it to. He's sending it to the the, the faithful brothers. Um, The proper render, the actual rendering here when when you read this uh, word brother, I'm saying this for the ladies, is this is a familial term. He's writing this as if he was writing to a family of people. In other words, he's writing it to Christians. They are in the, the body of Christ, the family of God. He's writing it as if they're all brothers and sisters. So an appropriate way to say this would be faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae. That would be the right way to read that. So where is Colossae? I, got a, I uh, stole a screen capture from Google. And all right, so we're in the Mediterranean. You've got the African continent here. You've got the Middle East right here. Israel, Jordan. This is modern day Turkey. And right here, where's my Colossians? Where is it? There it is. Right there. Okay, so this used to be called Asia Minor. It's part of Persia. Um, there's really nothing significant about this, about this city in 
the ancient history of, of, of Asia, uh, Asia Minor that scholars have pointed out. In fact, I would tell you in A.D. 61, about 10 years after we think Paul wrote this letter, this area was prone to earthquakes. <clears throat> and not only Colossae, but the two other cities that Paul mentions in this letter, Laodicea. You've heard about Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. They were lukewarm. Remember them? And then Hierapolis. These were towns that were in opposite directions, about 11 or 12 miles from them. There's a great earthquake, and all of these areas um, were totally decimated, and they have never been rebuilt. They've never been excavated. So there's not a lot, a lot known about the Colossae. It was located in the Lycus River Valley, and as you can see there, it's in this east-west corridor along this major river that connects Ephesus all the way to uh, the Euphrates River in, in Iraq. And so by the time Paul wrote this letter, Colossians uh, was used to, it used to be a, a booming town because of this trade route that it was a part of, but then all of a sudden it became a lesser town, not insignificant, but lesser, and Hierapolis and Laodicea became more prominent in terms of its trade and, and, its, and its economy. So Paul says to the saints and brothers in Christ, I'm going to take this backwards. And so it reads to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. I'm going to explain this a little backwards and you'll understand in a minute why I'm going to do that. Uh, firstly, he says in Christ. And I, I think he these are important words uh, in Christ are theologically significant um, words that Paul uses basically in all of of his writing. In Christ is a, a declaration from God of our justification. Romans 3 says that we are justified. We're made right with God by believing in the person and the work of Jesus. It, it comes to us by faith, not based upon anything that we do. And so Jesus, Jesus forgives me of my sin. He gives me this legal declaration that I'm justified. And if I'm justified, I'm in Christ. That's what that means theologically. Positionally, it means I'm in union with Jesus. It means in his death is my death and his life is my life. And so where is Jesus? Jesus is in the he ascended into heaven. He's in the third heaven where the presence of God dwells. And so Jeff is physically here in Alexandria. That's, That's where my feet are. But I am also with. Christ, because the Holy Spirit that's in in my spirit is one with Jesus spirit. It's his spirit. So according to scripture, we can, you know, we, we really can be either two. Uh, we, we are two things at the same time. Actually, we're, we're either either one of these things. We're either either in Adam or in Christ. We're in Adam or in Christ. In Adam simply means that we are still in our sin. And this is the, the principle uh, of someone representing us. It's the, the doctrine of a federal head. This really underlies all the things uh, that, that God, the, all the institutions that God implements in the world. Families, churches, government. Adam in the Garden of Eden was our representative head. When he sinned, we incurred his guilt and his sin. Jesus was able to live a perfect life, and in all the ways that Adam disobeyed God, Jesus fulfilled them perfectly. And so, 
we're either in Adam or we're in Jesus. We're either in Adam or we're in Christ. And so the question for you here should be, how do I know if I'm in Christ? How do I know if I'm not in Adam and in Christ? I got three things for you. Firstly, do you sense something decisively different about your identity? Do you wake up in the morning and know that that you're a little different, that that one way you were this way and another day that you were like this? Second Corinthians 517 says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The behold, the new has come. Is there anything in you that would sense that your soul has become qualitatively new? That your life is different and that by the work of God. In your life, the Bible calls this term born again. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John three, chapter three, you must be born again. There must be a transaction where uh, you're being forgiven of your your sins. You're acknowledging your sins. God is forgiving you of them and you're being cleansed by the Holy Spirit of God to be completely different. Secondly, do you desire to live a godly life? Do you desire to live a godly life? Now, we can misconstrue this and, and think that I'm saying, do you live? Do you live perfectly? Do you do everything the Bible says to do? And I would tell you, no one does that. Uh, I like what uh, Titus 2, 11 and 12 says. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and unworldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present present age. So when we we become a Christian, what salvation brings with it, the grace, the grace and the passion to to want to live right. Do we do it all the time? Absolutely not. Paul himself says, I I do the things I don't want to do. But there is the desire in us to do godly things. Do you have that? Thirdly, do you glory in Christ Jesus? Here, glory means boast. You know, a lot of times we, you know. We're eager to talk about what we can do in our own strength. Here, this glory would be more like I don't have to glory in myself. I, 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 only, only, the only glory I want to have is the glory in Christ. Philippians 3, 3 says this, for we are the circumcision. I, I, I choke up every time I read that. All right. So have you ever called yourself a circumcision? Right, this means covenant. We're the covenant people of God. We're the covenant people of God who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The phrase suggests that we don't have any reason to boast in our own achievements or status. Anything of great greatness or value that comes out of me, I can attribute only to Jesus. And so if you can't answer yes to, to these things, then I would say you're not in Christ. and You need to reexamine your life. But here's the real point. Paul is writing these. Paul is writing the book of Colossians to people who are in Christ. He says to the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae. He's writing it to Christians. And so if you're not in Christ, he's not writing to you. I mean, that 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 kind of that's like a a prick in my my shoulder there, Um, which means examine your life. Are you in Christ? I'm going to talk to you at the end about how you would. How you would reconcile that. More more important, it doesn't mean you have to leave. You can't listen to what I'm talking about. You can't read the book. It means you won't understand much of it. Okay, there's he's he's bringing a spiritual concept, spiritual terms. It won't have the effect it's supposed to have on you if you're not in Christ. And so you need to be in Christ. So Paul calls them saints and faithful brothers. What does this mean? 
Um, obviously, when, when many of us say the word Saints, we're thinking about last night's game where the New Orleans Saints just lost to the Seahawks. Seahawks brought it. They brought it, right? Okay, for those of you that watched the game. Um, so if you're not thinking about the New Orleans Saints, and I would tell you, if you Google the word Saints, it's always plural in the Bible. You're, gonna, you're not going to get anything spiritual. All you're going to get is like the New Orleans Saints, and they're, they're lost to the, the Seahawks last night. Perhaps you, are, you have a Catholic or an Orthodox background, then you are familiar with this term because there is a process in the Catholic and Orthodox Church where they make people saints. I would tell you to be a saint in the Catholic or the Orthodox Church, though, you have to have lived your whole life uh, a heroic, almost perfect life. Think Mother Teresa type of, of ending to your life. You have to be nominated. To, to be a saint, you have to go through this process of beatification where, you're, where you're, your life is researched and the nuances of everything that you did from childhood all the way through your death to see if you're worthy of this title of being called a saint. Get this, you have to have performed, if, if you weren't martyred for your faith, you have to have performed one miracle post-death. How do you do that? And then you have to go through the, the, the ritual of beatification and canonization. You know, that's not what the Bible actually says about saints, right? Okay? So, a biblical saint, everyone who's in Christ is a saint. A saint is this, those who have been set apart for God. You're different, okay? It has nothing to do with your moral purity or your ability to sin or, or, or not, not sin, OK, it's uh, it's a status that you're you're given. It's an identity that you get when you become a Christian, when you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're called out of the world and called into the kingdom of God. You're called out of Adam and into Jesus Christ. And so he says faithful brother and sister. And the, 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 the way that I would explain this is almost like an employee son daughter kind of a relationship. You know, if I'm an employee of a company, I might like the company, but I'm working for a compensation. Most of us that have jobs, we, we like what we do. We value it. We want to sow into uh, the organization, be a part of it, get something, you know, put something into it, get something out of it. But we're working for, a, for compensation. And this, this really drives us and keeps us working. And for some of us, this is how we relate to God. Think about it. I, I work. I, my relationship with God is like this. I'm going to put something in and God's going to give me something in return for what I do. And so this is the, the problem with that. The minute God stops reciprocating, God doesn't give me anything for this. I, I was good today. I was nice to my brother. Um, I served. I, I didn't cuss when I could have cussed. You know, all those things that that deter, you know, that happen in our behavior when I don't do those things and God doesn't reward me for them. Then I, I decide to leave God. I, he doesn't become important to me. I turn to some other idol that's going to satisfy me and give me what I need. I mean, what, what does a, a, a brother or a son or a daughter do? Well, when there's hard work to do and you're a part of the family, sometimes you just got to dig in and do it. Um, when we lived in North Carolina, we lived in a one acre yard 
and there were, I mean, we lived in a forest. There were trees everywhere, and my kids knew it. Um, every Saturday morning, even throughout the winter, we're going to get up, and we're going to spend at least 45 minutes to an hour raking 10 bags of leaves every week because the leaves never stop falling down, even in the winter. And, uh, you know, every once in a while, they, oh, I don't want to get up and do this again. But they, I mean, they were in it with me. They knew it was a part of the duty. They did it because they were a part of the family, and this is what the, the family does. And this is the mentality that we're supposed to have. And so it's a few, there's a few gospel, gospel implications from this. Um, even in this greeting, these first two verses, Paul is laying out this beautiful picture of identity for the Christian. Do you see it? He's laying out... Uh, our identity in these words of greeting the, the, the church at Colossae, faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae. The first thing is dual identity, dual identity. In Paul's theology, there are two levels of experience for believers. There's two kingdoms that we that we have our our existence in. We're citizens of this world, uh, but we have a perspective of another world. As well, I live in Alexandria, Virginia. I said this earlier before. I live physically in Alexandria, Virginia, but I'm eternally a citizen of heaven because I'm there. I'm in Christ and where he is. I am as well. I like how Paul says this in Ephesians chapter one, verse three. He says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That means, in a sense, the things that are happening in heaven, I have access to while I'm here on earth. Not not the full range of them, but I have access because I'm in Christ. I'm in union with him and I have a dual existence at the same time. The second thing, the second gospel implication would be behavior. You know, many, I say most of us live in, with this Catholic version of, of sainthood. If if I'm if I live a heroic life, if I'm good without any blemishes on my record at all, then I will I'll get rewarded with the title of saint at the end of my life. And that really is an identity that says my behavior determines my identity. And the biblical perspective is is really upside down. It's, it's the other way around. The biblical perspective would be that identity determines behavior. Who I am determines who I am supposed to be, who I'm called to be. If you're in Christ, you're already a saint. You don't have to work for it. God has deemed you that. He's deemed you that by the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit comes and he grabs your life and he slowly walks you through so that you actually become what you already are. We have to get this right or we become moralists. Our lives look good on the outside, but when we peek, when you pull open that jacket, uh, we're a mess. Or we become Pharisees. We look at other people who, I mean, we're, we're like white knuckling our life to make sure all of our I's are dotted, our Latins are crossed. We don't do anything wrong. Our kids are perfect. Our house is perfect. Our cars are perfect. My job is perfect. My money is perfect. And we look at other people and we judge them because they're an open mess. That's what the Pharisees did. The third gospel implication would be the idea of motivation. What motivates me to do the things that I do and be who I am? And I would tell you, um, you know, all of us 
all of us um, struggle at some point of seeing what the Bible says and making sense of it and actually doing it. You ever thought about this? Uh, we have that, this grand command in Leviticus. Moses is, is giving the commands and he's telling the, the, the nation of Israel, be holy for I'm holy. Jesus and the apostles um, echo this in the Gospels and the, the epistles. Be holy because I'm holy. I mean, ever look in your own life? I mean, ever, ever, ever notice instances where you're not as holy as you should be? I mean, look, in fact, if, if, if you can't say that about your own life, look to your left and your right, and you'll see people who don't get this quite right all the time in their life. And so here's the thing. If I'm bound by Scripture to live in obedience to God, and I know what Scripture says, but I can't do it all the time, not in my own strength, although I want to, how do I do it? How, how do I make this work? I think one of the approaches is we try harder. okay? and all of us are good at doing that. Try harder. Um, You could dangle a carrot out in front of your 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 face and and chase that carrot as a motivation to to go get all the things to be who you're supposed to be, to get it all done and make it all all perfect. But I mean, that doesn't work for very long. The gospel says what motivates me to live obediently is my identity. It's, it's who God has called me to be. Because my faith in God through the person and work of Jesus has given me a new identity. I'm a child of God. I'm favorite son. I'm an heir of righteousness. I'm beloved. I'm accepted. I'm all those things. This is who God has called me to be because I've, forget, I've, I've been forgiven of my sins. I'm in Christ. He's made me his own. He's given me this identity. And then he's going to. Help me curb my behavior. I obey out of gratitude. I'm already holy in Jesus. God has declared me holy and righteous under creation. And out of this, I obey. And that's the difference between religion and the gospel. There's a little chart here. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Therefore I obey. Religion says my motivation is based on fear and insecurity. The gospel says my motivation is based on grateful joy. Religion says I obey God in order to get things from God. The gospel says I obey God to get more of God, to delight and resemble, to look more like him over the course of my life. The gospel says God has already given you everything that you need in Christ. You serve worship out of the gratefulness in who he is. And we really need to get this because some of us are trying really hard to be all the right things in God. And it's just wearing us out when God says be out of who you already do out of who you already have have become. So all the way through Colossians, we'll see this pattern. Identity comes first and then behavior. We're going to see this in in. Every time I come up here, you know, during the weeks that we talk about the book of Colossians, identity become identity comes first, then behavior. This is what Jesus has done for for you. Therefore, here's how you should live. Here's what here's who God has made you to be. Therefore, this is this is live like this. Um, There's one thing in the in the text that I'm going to cover real quickly uh, because we're introducing this book. And that's really um, Why is he writing this? Why is Paul writing this? We don't get to this until really chapter two, but I want to introduce it to you now. 
Um, this letter is being written for a reason, and it's to combat false, false teaching, false doctrine. OK, that's bad theology. Um, it's the same thing that was happening in Galatians and Jude, Second Peter. Uh, people had come in and um, not waving banners saying, hey, uh, believe this false thing with me. But they come in and just uh, taking nuances of what Paul had taught and said, Paul's not teaching you correctly. Believe this. And I would tell you that still happens in uh, in our church today. Not our church, but it happens in the church of Jesus Christ today. John Stott says this uh, this uh, poignant uh, comment. The devil disturbs the church as much by error as he does by evil. You heard me say that before when we were studying Galatians. Um, that means that there are plenty of opportunity for the enemy to come in and entice us. If he can't entice us to sin, then he's going to try and entice us um, in terms of what we believe, in terms of our doctrine. There's two examples of this in our culture. The first is postmodern pluralism. That's a big word. This simply means it simply means this. It's the idea there's no such thing as objective truth in spiritual things. Um, that means that. Uh, this religion thinks this is true. This religion thinks this is true. And each one can believe whatever they want. And the pluralism part is we can't um, we can't um, judge the other because of base, uh, because of based on what they believe, because uh, there is no objective truth in spiritual things. And I would tell you, D.A. Carson says that. This is probably one of the, the worst heresies facing the church today than Gnosticism in the days when the church uh, first started. The second um, example of our culture of a false doctrine would be me, me-ism or me-centered theology. And that's where you take um, a biblical gospel and make it not about God and his glory, but make it about yourself. And we see this all around us all the time. Instead of uh, instead of me being created to enjoy God and worship him forever, God is the entity that gives me perfect health and all the finances I need. And um, you've heard this phrase, my best life now. And I would tell you um, that is not what we should be after. So what does false teaching look like? Uh, It's subtle. Okay, we don't see a false teacher isn't going to be waving a flag and saying, hey, come and, and do what I'm doing. Say say what I'm saying. Uh, it's, it's subtle. It's as subtle as the serpent coming up to Eve in the Garden of Eden and misconstruing the words that she had heard from God to, to, to convince her that God had not said what he said. It's a subtle pulling away from the standard. And the underlying assumption is that Jesus isn't enough. That you have to add something to Jesus to, to get your life truly. If you want to go to heaven, yeah, you can believe the gospel, but you, I mean, you need a little bit more. I mean, it's, you got to have a little bit more to go to heaven or to deliver right life or to, to be good. You got to do a little bit more. And so what Paul does in Colossians, he goes on the offensive. And this is really an offensive look at Paul as an apostle in terms of how he mentors people that were you know, under his, his pastorship. He speaks clearly and thoroughly on the supremacy of Jesus. We're going to get to that in a couple of weeks. Chapter one, he says he's a pre he's preeminent over all creation, Lord over all humans, rulers and cosmic powers. In chapter two, he will exalt the sufficiency of Jesus. Listen to these words in chapter two. 
Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you with questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. He's like, you can you can chase after all these kind of mystical things. But Christ is sufficient. He is all you need. You don't need uh, you don't need superior experiences. All you need is Christ and him crucified. And then we get to chapters three and four. He's going to tell us in light of who Jesus is and what he's done. Live like this. This is how you should orient your behavior. Dying to sin, crucifying your flesh and living for God. Paul concludes his greeting with these great words. He says grace to you and peace from God. Our father. These aren't trite words. These aren't trite words. They're Paul's way of of praying a blessing over his readers for what's going to come out of his mouth that they might receive it with the favor that he's giving it to them. And then he says peace and peace is two things. First, peace, as we learned during Advent, peace is is being reconciled to God. It's not being at enmity with God anymore because of my sin. But peace here is a different kind of peace. Peace peace here is the confidence and trust in all that God has promised that he's going to fulfill. And so he's wishing that he's blessing the Colossian people up front ahead of anything that he says with those words. And I'll conclude with this. And I have a few hopes for us as we study this book over the weeks. The first is that. Um, is that we would learn all that it means to be in Christ. I want us, all of us, to be in Christ and to understand fully what that means. I want us to learn, to learn a little bit more about Jesus. I want us to understand that there's no one, no name, no fame that's, that's higher than him. I want us to, to make him preeminent over our lives. I want us to, um, to understand how to put off sin and to put on Christ, how to make Christ sufficient and supreme in our in our behavior. My hope is that we would know and know what it means to obey and live out God's commands, not out of legalism or forcing ourselves to do it, but out of great gratitude for who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so uh, as I close here, my question for you would be today. Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? And if you're not, then um, we're going to have a time of communion here in a second. And I would ask you to either come up and and talk and and, and ask me or one of our other leaders, what does it mean to be in Christ? But more importantly, you you actually can do this right here in your seat. You can pray and, and speak to God for yourself and ask him to reveal to you This man who was God, who lived the perfect life and died on the cross for you, to to justify you, to make you, to put you in relationship with God where there was no relationship. Let's pray. So, Lord, would you invite us even now into your grace, into your great grace? And God, would you. As you spoke to the church at Colossae through the words of Paul, would you speak over us your peace, that we would have a peace, that we would be reconciled to God, and a peace that we would come to know the crucified Son even better? 
God, we pray that you would make the words of this book come alive for us over these weeks as we study it. I pray for those in this room here today who would simply confess they're not a Christian, I'm not in Christ. I pray, God, that you would reveal your son to them, that they would hear your voice, God, that they would answer your call, that they would know what it means to trust Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Lord, help us. We pray especially for all of us who are experiencing this uh, flu epidemic here. God, I pray your healing over our bodies. Rid us of colds, Lord God. Take away comfort, discomfort where there is, where there, uh, where it exists in our, in our lungs, in our coughs. God, heal us. As we come to communion, Lord God, we remember you, your broken body, your shed blood. We thank you for your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.